0: Well, here in this third session, we were talking about communication. And so what we did in the last session was try to lay out a positive framework of building connection so that in this session, we could talk about having godly communication, which then, I mean, if we can get point A and point B down, it's going to significantly aid us when we get to talking about conflicts. So uh, in this conversation about communication, there will be some like overflow in terms of things that we uh, have already talked about. And originally, uh, when we were coming to this, Jen was going to do a breakout for women and uh, talk about all of the horrible ways that husbands communicate and how to change them and fix them. Uh, (laughs) She's obviously not here. So her handout and the handout that says, there should be one that says handling communication husbands and then handling communication wives. Uh wives, you, you, you get the sad privilege of having to sit through the handling communication for husbands. But we'll try to be as democratic as possible and uh, address both husbands and wives in this communication piece because hopefully both can be equally served. A um, little bit of a communication stat, and then we'll do a very unscientific, informal poll. But uh, Luanne Bresendine, who's a scientist, uh, wrote a book, and she kind of averaged out how many words per day uh, women speak versus men, and she said that men speak on average 7,000 words a day, and women on average speak 20,000 words a day, so nearly triple, okay? Now, here's the thing. When I go around and do this, though, I always get a lot of feedback that in a lot of couples, that's actually switched, so I would be curious to see who, if you think that your husband, or if you are a husband, if you do the majority of the talking in your relationship, raise your hand, Okay, all right, so it's probably, okay, so this, this, I would say, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's New Jersey. I feel like when I go to other places, I get wives, like, raising their hands, like, definitely my husband's the bigger talker, uh, but roughly, normally, if you kind of go with maybe some of those statistics, wives do tend to talk and communicate more in relationships, whereas husbands tend to be on the more uh, quiet or reserved side. Now, I would love to, uh, again, originally this was just going to be a discussion point with the guys, but I'd love to put it out there for all of us, and so I'm going out on a little bit of a limb here uh, with the question, but uh, I wanted to ask, what are some of the biggest challenges that you face in communicating with your spouse? So imagine I was just asking this to husbands, and so the husbands can kind of share. Uh, Now I'm asking it when your spouses are here present, and so... (laughs) I don't want to get any of you into trouble, but maybe you could say, well, my friend, my friend's marriage, I think that their biggest challenge in communicating is X, but, uh, I mean, any, any brave souls would say like, hey, yeah, this is, this is a challenge for us in terms of our communication in marriage. You can just shout it out. You don't need to raise your hand or anything. What are some of the challenges that you face in communication? My bride is 10,000 times smarter than I Okay, okay. Meaning, like maybe she can out argue you, outsmart you, out outdo everything communication-wise. No, and that happens. Distractions. distractions okay, yeah, things create. Like, what kind of distractions? Just anything. Phones. Yeah. Schedules. Busyness. <laughs> Mike's hanging his head in shame. <laughs> but she's talking about a friend. She's, you're talking about another another friend's <laughs> marriage. We get. Somebody, that's it, that's that's the one I always, somebody I've been counseling has this struggle. Yeah, my wife's like, yeah, it's you, it's me. Um, what are some other challenges that you guys face? Distraction. Pardon me? Okay, flesh that out a little bit in terms of like. Yes, yeah, yeah. You're not, you're not ready for like a two hour like tell me the deepest, darkest secrets of your heart and What have you always longed for? Yeah, you just like want to eat and watch TV. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) No, I get that. So that would be like a difference in expectation, right? In terms of what you want coming home versus what she wants when she comes home, uh, when you come home. I always say that transition points in marriage are great opportunities for connection or disconnection, meaning when husbands leave the house and when husbands come back into the house, or conversely, when wives uh, leave the house and work and when they come back home. Those re-entry points and exit points are critically important um, of just getting back on the same page. So that's a common conflict point. Other, other causes? Um, she always knows what she needs. I barely ever know what I need. Like, okay. Do I do yes, yes, yes. I think that that need conversation is so spot on in terms of one of the reasons why I find a lot of people have a hard time understanding their needs is because early on from childhood, oftentimes those are children whose needs were either unattended to, neglected, or were not prioritized by their parents. And so over time, you just learn, hey, when I feel need, I self-manage it. I work, I do something else to prevent that need from coming up to the surface. So a need to be loved or appreciated or uh, to be emotionally regulated. Uh, You just learn to be very uh, individualistic, independent, competent, uh, self-assured, which oftentimes in Christian circles, we prize that as fruit of the spirit. You know, we're like, oh, that's, you know, good. You don't need anybody. Uh, And we don't realize, no, we are needy and needed people by design. And uh, a core part of who we are is that we were created to not be alone. And so when we don't understand what those needs are, it can really complicate our relationships when we come with somebody who does have a a high degree of knowledge about their needs. So that's where I think the emotion wheel, some of that attunement exercise that we went through last time can be helpful. But those are all good ideas. Any any last-minute entries? Okay, we'll just kind of keep those at the back of our mind then as we dive into this topic of handling communication. But when we think about communication in marriage, I just want to kind of set out a few principles to kind of ground then some of the practicals that come out of which. And the first of which is this, is that communication is deeply rooted in how God created us. Communication is deeply rooted in how God created us. I don't think that oftentimes couples think of communication as an intensely theological issue. I think typically we think about communication as a style issue or personality or a family of origin, male, female. Uh, I'll have couples tell me, oh, she's an external processor, I'm an internal processor. Uh, She's more verbal, I'm more nonverbal. And so we kind of uh, allow some of our communication mishaps to be explained away by external circumstances rather than seeing that really at the core... A communication is first and foremost a theological issue, and we see the importance of it really from the beginning pages of the Scripture where we see a pattern of, and God what? And God said. God speaks to us. His speech is creative, and His speech is purposeful. He chooses to communicate to us through language, and that language then has been recorded for us in God's Word. Uh, when God speaks, God's language, His words do something. And the same principle then is true for us. Being made in God's image, you and I have the ability to speak, to to speak to one another. And in Proverbs 18, 21, we're told of the stakes. The author of Proverbs says what? He says death in what? Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And so when we uh, use our speech, there are two things that I would want you to know about speech and communication. Number one of which is this, you and I image God when we communicate. So one of the very simplest ways where you and I can just simply be image bearers of God is that we talk. And so I would, I think, be talking more to introverts and nonverbal processors at this point. God wants you to speak up in marriage. Right? God wants you to communicate and speak to your spouse in marriage because that's going to be one of the most practical ways that you can image God in your relationship. And some of the uh, introverts and, and, and internal processors must be saying, might be saying at this moment, well, then my, my image-bearer spouse, she is really imaging God a lot because she likes to talk a lot. And hallelujah, that's a good thing. We, we image God when we speak words of life to one another. Number two, we love and prefer our spouse when we communicate we love and prefer our spouse. And what do I mean by that? Well, if speaking is an opportunity to uh, give words of life and to build connection, then that is a way that self-sacrificially we move out of ourselves and out of our own silos of silence that we want to ensconce ourselves in, and we move towards them. We say, yeah, you want to talk? I want to talk too. So we image God when we communicate, and we can love and prefer our spouse when we communicate. And again, For a lot of you in here today, husbands in particular... I'll tell husbands when they're talking about, hey, how do I self-sacrificially love my spouse? I'll say one of the ways might just simply be through conversation. Just be willing to talk to your spouse. Your spouse will feel seen and heard when she's engaged in conversation. Paul Tripp writes this. He says, words are powerful, they're important, and they're significant. It was meant to be that way. When we speak, it must be with the realization that God has given our words significance. God has given our words significance. He has ordained for them to be important Words were significant at creation, they were significant at the fall, and they are significant to redemption. God has given words value. Uh, Creation, or communication rather, is then one of the most important resources that you have in your marriage. And again, when you think about uh, resources that you can tap into as couples— Uh, that uh, don't cost anything, that don't cost too much time, that don't cost a lot of effort. Communication is one of those things. You always will be able to talk and to communicate with your spouse. Uh, Number two, communication flows out of our hearts. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because, again, uh, I I sense that you were uh, sensible and well-taught people, but I uh, am understanding that we would be coming to at least a similar spot of belief that uh, scripturally and biblically speaking, we know that our speech and our communication is directly reflective of what is in our hearts, what is in our hearts, what we treasure, and what we value. And so there in that uh, Luke passage, uh, Jesus says that a good Man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For what the mouth speaks, what the heart is full of. And so, again, it's not an impossibility that at different times a believer is going to say things that are uh, unkind or that are not godly, but hopefully, over time, it wouldn't necessarily be an impossibility, but it should be an implausibility that a believer is going to consistently have ungodly communication come out of their mouth. And that's what that James 3 passage is talking about between the saltwater well and the freshwater well. Like, hey, don't, don't think that you can curse God and then out of the other side of your mouth go bless people. Or another way that we might say it to have impact for our setting is uh, don't think that you can berate your wife and yell at her and then come to church on Sunday and be singing worship songs at Highlands right? Uh, don't think that you can be yelling at your kids and berating your husband and then come to a ladies' Bible study, right? Those, those two things, both James and Jesus would say, those two things don't make sense. You, you shouldn't be engaging in that type of behavior because the treasure of your heart, the love of your heart, the things that you value in your heart ultimately come out and are reflected in your communication, and so oftentimes in our communication with our spouses, instead of taking responsibility for the things that are our heart treasures and that we value in that moment, maybe the valuing of being right or the value of being heard or whatever it might be, we love to blame shift our spouse, right? Of uh, Well, if she just did this, then I wouldn't have to do this. Like if he didn't raise his voice, then I wouldn't have to raise my voice with him. Or if she did this, then I wouldn't have to do this. And what we forget and what we fail to recognize is, no, all of the speech that we reflect and that we communicate ultimately has a dotted line that goes right back down into our hearts. So when we think about changing our communication, then in marriage, this has a huge implication that, again, I don't want you to ever leave here or leave from anything that I'm teaching in any setting and the message be, go home, try harder, be a better person, right? Uh, It's not, hey, be a kinder, gentler communicator. It is reckon. And, and take note of the gospel, that the gospel, that the good news of Jesus Christ is the only thing that is going to root out those desires in your heart and replace them with desires that then ultimately are going to reflect a good conversation and good priorities to bring into your marital conversations. So communication ultimately is rooted in how we were made. Communication comes out of our heart. It flows out of our hearts. Thirdly, communication shows who you belong to communication shows who you belong to. Uh, We were talking earlier, some of us, just about uh, the lead pastor at the main campus of the church that I attend, Parkside, is Alistair Begg. And Alistair obviously has a Scottish accent, and uh, so he could be telling you the weather or reading the phone book to you, and it's just amazing. You just feel like you're being wrapped in a warm Scottish blanket and just, you know, Uh, It's just wonderful. I could listen to him all day. And we always joke around that Alistair's worst day is our best day because just when he talks, it just seems so nice. It just seems so warm and inviting. And part of that is that the way that Alistair talks reflects to us who he is and where he's from, right? Nobody hears Alistair and says, oh, you're an American per se. We would say, no, we hear you and you're not from here. You were from Scotland. You were Scottish, right? Just like we might hear somebody from Australia or from another country. Uh, My girls love doing different accents. They all wish, I think, that they could have a British accent, so they're constantly trying to sound British or Australian or something very smart-sounding, so not American, I guess, would be the the analogy there. Uh, And and, and over time, right, they they can't keep up the accent, right, because you just kind of slip back into your native American tongue. So they'll joke around with it, and at the dinner table, they'll all be using different accents, but because it's not their native tongue, it wears off, and they default back to their old tongue. And I'd say the same thing can happen with us in communication. You think about Ephesians 4, where Paul reminds the Ephesians. He says, listen, those are, those are the old ways. You need to forget those. You need to put those off. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you need to be renewed. And you need to put on new, new ways of speaking and doing and living life together. And I think sometimes for us, right, we try to very much uh, put on without also doing the put off. We try to uh, put on good things, but then on the back end, we're also not putting off the, the old way of doing things, the old way of speaking as it were. And so it's very easy for us to slip into those old patterns if we're not taking some of those old sinful patterns of communication or interaction and confessing those and repenting from those. And so after you move forward in Ephesians 4 from that uh, section on speaking truth and love and not living like the old self or putting off and putting on, that next section that Paul gets to in Ephesians 4, 25 through 32 is very much oriented around what? Around your conversation, around your communication, right? Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good for the use of edifying, that it may minister what? Grace to the hearers, right? Let all bitterness and wrath and clamor be put away from you, right? Uh, Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down in your wrath, right? There's all of these relational imperatives that get issued to the Ephesians based off of the relational indicatives of who they are in Christ, who they belong to. Our activity flows out of our identity, and I think that that's something that we have to constantly remind ourselves, because if our activity flows out of our identity, then our communication then also as we've seen, flows out of our identity. So uh, like I tell the girls, like I tell my girls, when they're fighting or arguing or bickering with one another, I'll say, listen, what is inside is always going to come out on the outside. So in this conversation where you're fighting and you're striving and you're backbiting and whatever it is, uh, girls, we have to talk about what's going on in your heart, right? That's where the conversation has to take place. So with some of those kind of principles, those big picture principles in place regarding communication, I just want to give you five different commitments, five different commitments. It says, what do wives need from their husbands when it comes to communication? And if you're a wife, you can just sub it out. What do do husbands need from their wives when it comes to biblical communication? Because these are going to be equal opportunity regardless of whether you're a husband or a wife. So here we go. The first commitment that every one of us, myself included, need to leave here with today is this, is a commitment to have biblically shaped and informed conversation. A commitment to have biblically shaped and informed conversation. Now listen, Scripture is silent on a lot of different things. Uh, Scripture is silent on a lot of stuff as it relates to marriage, honestly. Like there's not a ton of content out there on marriage in the Bible. You get some stuff in Genesis narratively. Uh, You get some stuff in Ephesians. You get a couple of imperatives for husbands and wives. But outside of that, it seems like the general teaching for husbands and wives is what makes for a good Christian man is what makes for a good Christian husband. What makes for a good Christian wife is what makes for a good Christian woman. That, That so many of these things that are needed in marriage really tie back to just our identity as children of God, right? Scripture doesn't give us a lot of hey, this is who's supposed to do this. This is supposed to uh, take care of the finances or do dishes or do this or that. Now, if you want to build a tabernacle or if you want to build an ark or set up a sacrificial system, there's tons of content in the Bible about that, right? I mean, there's whole books dedicated to that and you're like reading through like, why can't we get this kind of content about marriage, right? Uh, But I think it's because the whole testimony of Scripture really is meant to inform and shape how we do it. Now, one of the things Scripture I think does give us an inordinate amount of content on is how we communicate and how we talk. In particular, the Proverbs. The book of Proverbs, I think, in particular, is full of wisdom as it relates to our communication. And what I actually did there for you is I just tried to cut and paste a few verses that I know have been helpful to me that I oftentimes will try to remind myself in times of conversation or talk to others about. But one of the exercises that I'll do with couples and marriage counseling is just simply say, hey, why don't you guys spend some time in the Proverbs just reading through it devotionally and picking out some Proverbs that speak to you and that speak to certain relational or communication struggles that you have and just say, hey, we want to really follow through on what this proverb is offering to us by way of commendation. So things like Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger, right? We, we almost could take that verse, a soft answer turns away wrath, and talk about turning towards, right? Negative emotional intolerance. So having a soft answer when I want to get angry is the ability to what? Kind of manage and regulating those negative emotions I might feel in order to make a bid for connection uh, with my spouse, right? Proverbs 15.1 is talking about that way earlier than... John and Julie Gottman ever envisioned it. Now, Proverbs 15, 21, a person finds joy in giving an apt reply. How good is a timely word, right? Timing is everything, right? Timing is everything in communication. And maybe for you, part of the reason why you get tripped up in communication with your spouse is just the timing, right? The husband's coming home right after work. And I would tell most wives, most husbands in my experience would say that's not the ideal point in time to to have a conversation and to unload everything, right? Uh, And vice versa, you might have different times that are gonna be more productive for conversation and you might have other times where you realize these conversations are unproductive. Uh, I know again, Jen and I's dynamic with being morning and evening, I'll wake up in the morning, go to work early, I'll be sending her probably like half a dozen texts and six emails before it's like 7 a.m. And she's like, okay, you need to slow your roll, (laughs) that's a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, that's, that's a lot of information for me to handle. I'm like, okay, like I, there's a different way, right, then that I can pace out and send out communication just simply knowing that. Again, it's not a sin or a not-sin issue that some of us like to communicate in certain ways, but is there a timing to it where we can prefer and respect our spouse? But things like Proverbs 16, 21, I love the end of that verse. It says, sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. I love that, Right? How can I make my speech sweet? And sweet doesn't necessarily mean, like, uh, that means there's no confrontation, there's no mention of sin. It just means, I think, what it means, that I want to be kind in how I talk. I want to be sweet in how I talk, right? And I I don't think it's a proverb, but rather just a a proverb that we've created of, hey, you're going to attract more flies with what? With honey than with vinegar, right? If your speech is just acerbic and cutting and cutting and spiteful, You're probably not gonna be persuading anybody, right? But if you can place your arguments, your concerns, your questions in a way that is kind and sweet, the Proverbs I don't think are necessarily guaranteeing it, but they're definitely saying, hey, you're gonna have more, you're gonna have get more bang for your buck, as it were, if you can increase your sweetness of speech and thereby increase persuasiveness. So again, a lot of it is just changing up your tone, your approach, and how you talk about things. Proverbs 26, you know, this is a good one for husbands that I put in. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking, right? A lot of times I think husbands can try to excuse away some of their uh, more unkind communication by just saying, well, you know, that's not how I meant it. You know, I was just kidding. Like, can't you take a joke? Like, not a big deal. Stop overreacting. Man, you always have to take everything so seriously, right? You might say some of those things, but again, the Proverbs are saying, like, that's, that's not a healthy way to communicate. Don't say something in an unkind way, and then don't, don't throw, they say, firebrands, arrows, and death, and then just say, oh, my get-out-of-jail-free card is just to say, I'm only joking or just kidding, right? Because the damage is done, and you just saying, I'm only joking, then doesn't keep in tenor with the damage that's just been done. Now, Proverbs twenty-seven fourteen. here's a timing verse. You know, whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning, that would be me, uh, will be counted as cursing, right? My wife's like, stop cursing at me. I'm like, I'm just trying to, you know, encourage you this morning. Uh, just realizing that, again, that timing and when you bring things up is so key. So think about even biblically right now, maybe even looking at some of those Proverbs, where does your communication need to be sharpened and grow, right? Did any of those different Proverbs, did they stand out to you by way of conviction that would say, hey, like, I think I need to change up my approach. I think I could be more kind in how I talk about these things with my wife. I think that I could, I think I could build her up more. I think I could build him up more in how I speak. And number two, a commitment to become a better listener a commitment to become a better listener, one of my favorite exercises in marriage counseling is after a wife gets done talking and sharing, I'll ask the husband, Could you repeat back to me what she said and I will tell you ninety nine percent of the time a husband can't do it. It could be short, it could be even a monologue but I'd say ninety nine percent of the time the husband will get like a deer in the headlights look or just not even answer the question they'll just offer me an interpretation or say something else, and I'll just sit, gently try to say no no, no let's We'll come back to that. But could you just simply repeat back to me what your wife just said? Um, well, I think it was. And it's, it's this weird dynamic where, again, we are not listening. We might be hearing, taking in information. But as soon as it comes in, it leaves us. It doesn't do anything to us. And so one of the ways that we grow in communication is by becoming a better listener. We have to become better listeners. I don't know, some of you who are a little bit older, I I, I grew up watching Frazier, the psychiatrist, and uh, you know the famous line that Frazier would answer on the radio when callers would call in, is he would say, hi, you're on the line with Dr. Frazier Crane and I'm what? I'm listening. And, and the big joke with Frazier was that he was never listening, right? He was always like messing around in the studio. He was talking. He was totally distracted. He was the opposite of doing anything but listening. He was saying it, but he wasn't doing it. And so I've included there for you again in your handout. And again, if it was just husbands, we're going to do a little bit of a fun exercise with this. But Adam McHugh has written a helpful book on listening Uh, has a a whole blog post on how to be a bad listener. And he's identified different, I would say, different caricatures of people who are uh, bad listeners, and he's kind of recounted them there for you. And so just maybe read through some of them and identify what are some of your weaknesses in listening. Uh, Like one of them is the inspector, the, didn't you just say last week that where the listener asks a series of questions, uh, trying to to draw them out instead of just listening and allowing uh, the conversation to come out. I call that the inspector or even the interrogator, right? A husband will come home and, you know, will want to just kind of sit down or just enjoy uh, just, you know, not being at work. And uh, immediately there's a line of questioning and interrogation and inspection uh, that can just feel really overwhelming. Uh, Things like the projector, the password, the mechanic. Again, I I wrote a little H down there next to the mechanic because a lot of times I think husbands struggle with that. A wife will say something and the immediate uh, response to that in terms of being a bad listener is the mechanic of, okay, I know what your problem is and I'm going to fix it for you, right? And every wife loves that. She responds really well to that. Uh, Said no wife ever, right? Right? Uh, We'll talk about that later, about how wives typically want to be seen and heard and understood in a moment, whereas men typically want to fix or solve something in the midst of a problem. So again, the type of listener you might be, the type of bad listener is you're the mechanic of just, okay, I'm only listening for things from my spouse that I can fix or that I can problem solve. Uh, The deflector is another common one. I find that husbands and wives are kind of equal opportunity. So the wife will say something that's maybe a critique and the husband will say, you know, I know you are, but what am I? Or I know, you know, I, I know you do that, but I know you're saying I do that, but what about you? It's kind of like the whataboutism, that deflector where constantly you just deflect anything that comes back to you. So maybe you just look through some of those things. Again, this could be a helpful point, you know, that you kind of discuss afterwards of, hey, I, I'm gonna lean towards the default of this is always something I can grow in. But honey, if, if I were to become a better listener for you, what would that look like? What could I do to become a better listener to you? And just receive their feedback. Listen to their feedback and, and incorporate that into your conversation. Remember, listening leads to empathy, and empathy leads to connection and compassion. So again, I'm not just trying to get you all to be better Uh, therapist or like, you know, you know, uh, these people who are just trying to like, you know, analyze uh, all of the problems of the world while your spouse sits on a couch. Like, I'm not trying to to get you to do that. I'm trying to get you to a spot where that listening builds connection, which leads to empathy and compassion. Uh, Next commitment is a commitment to encourage and say something good about their spouse. A commitment to encourage and say something good about their spouse. Uh, I will tell you, especially in marriage, that one of the number one things that husbands and wives will both tell me is a significant encouragement to them is when their spouse says something good about them to someone else or says something good about them and they hear it, they're within earshot, right? That a wife will make a comment about her husband that's encouraging and positive. And even more so than that, uh, something and it won't surprise you that spouses will say is when my spouse directly encourages me and says something good about me. Uh, that is a huge encouragement to me. Uh, I, I was at a conference one time and uh, a pastor was talking about the ministry of encouragement. And he had this line that has just stuck with me forever. He says, nobody ever gets discouraged towards faithfulness and godliness. No one ever gets discouraged towards faithfulness and godliness. Meaning that we don't help people grow in their faith by discouraging them. We encourage people in their faith into grow in godliness. We all can grow in that ministry of encouragement, and I think that for oftentimes many of us, that ministry of encouragement or that ministry of affirmation is it's a language that we just don't use a lot around the house. Right? It's something that we are much more prone to use our words to point out things that need to be fixed, things that need to be done, ways that you're not meeting my expectations. But here's a little mental exercise to do that, you know, again, I don't want to be the Holy Spirit, but maybe could be an opportunity for conviction would be this. What was the last truly good thing you said about your spouse? Like the last truly good, meaningful thing that you said about your spouse, the last thing that you identified that the Lord was doing in their life uh, besides like, hey, thanks for making dinner, something like that moves you beyond the boilerplate or the underbrush of life, right? Not just like, hey, thanks for being a human being, but something that, something that actually means something, right? I love what Paul says in Philippians 1.6. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so I think what Paul is saying there is that for any believer, regardless of whether or not it's immediately obvious or not, God is always at work. God is always at work doing something in and through your spouse's life. So as another uh, fellow co-heir of grace, you should be able to have that type of eyesight, to be able to spot and to be able to see, hey, I see God up to work in your life, completing the work of redemption in this particular way. Now, again, you don't have to say it like that. I'm just saying that's the way, though, that we can begin encouraging. One of the one of the beautiful things I think we even see from the New Testament writings is that even in the most difficult and harsh situations that Paul and Peter and, and even Christ have to address, almost always he finds something good to say about them, right? Think about the church at Corinth, right? I mean, it's a, it's a hot mess at Corinth. I mean, multiple visits, multiple letters. I mean, there's a lot of bad stuff going on at Corinth. And yet in the first chapter in Corinthians, Paul says, I see every spiritual gift at work in you. I see every, I mean, in the midst of people sleeping with their relatives, misusing the Lord's Supper, suing one another, misusing spiritual gifts, Paul says, here's something good about you. Now think about the, uh, the letters to the churches in Revelation where Jesus is speaking words to all seven churches, except for a couple, right, to five of the churches. He says, even though there's some bad to identify, I can always say something good about you, right? And so I just want to encourage all of you today to commit to saying something good about your spouse. And what I'll come back to is husbands and wives do not make the error of, well, my silence is approval, right? Well, I don't say anything because obviously I approve of what she's doing or I don't want to encourage him, uh, one wife told me, because I don't want him to get a big head right? I, I need to kind of hold back on the encouragement. and can I come back? nobody That doesn't happen, right? Nobody's going to get discouraged by following God by having too much godly encouragement, right? If anything, in our lifetimes, friends, we need more godly encouragement. So again, here would be a little, you know, if it was just the guys, what I was going to have you do is I was going to pass out some three by five cards, but just even writing a note to your spouse sometime between now and tomorrow, just saying, hey, this is something good about you that I want to encourage, right? It could be a post-it note, it could be a card, it could be whatever, it could be a text message, I'll even take that. But just say something good about your spouse. Encourage them, build them up. And, And friend, if you're here today and you're in a marriage that we might say is more difficult, failure to thrive, destructive, that's a category that I would say, okay, that might be a little bit more difficult to find this. But in the majority of marriages that are represented here, I can almost guarantee you there is something good that you can say. There's something good that you can identify, something that is praiseworthy that is of good report. And bring that into the open. Uh, I think that you would be amazed when there's that mutual encouragement, what it can do to a marriage, especially for marriages that might feel a little bit dry or feel a little bit parched for oxygen or for for water, as it were, encouragements like a drop of cool water on a relationship. Man, I never knew you felt that way about me. I never knew that that meant something to you. Like, I'm so thankful uh, to hear that from you. Uh, engage in that ministry of encouragement. Say something good about them. Uh, conversely, this is a little bit of a side note. I also think that in marriage, I'll always encourage couples to make a commitment to not tear down their spouse in front of others. And uh, I can confidently say in my marriage, that is something that we've tried to commit to from the very beginning. Uh, Jen has never, at least in my memory and to my knowledge, she has never, ever spoken wrongly or unkindly of me to someone else. And, and, and I would hope by God's grace, the same has been true with me. But a lot of times I'll encounter couples in marriages and the way that they talk about their spouse to me and in front of other people, it's just, it's horrific, it's horrible. And so a commitment on the positive would be to encourage and say something good. A commitment on the other end of that, just as I'm thinking about it negatively, negatively would be commit to not tearing down your spouse in front of other people. Commit to not tearing down your spouse in front of your mother or your father, or your children, or in front of other people in church, or under the guise of you know, a prayer meeting, like, hey, I just need to share this about so-and-so, or about my spouse. Commit to saying something good about them. Uh, next commitment, a commitment to make requests, and just include a little carrot there. A commitment to make requests and observations, not make judgment statements. So again, this comes back to a little bit of what we talked about in the last session of making requests and observations keeps and pulls you more towards the objective of, hey, this is what I'm seeing, but I could be off because I'm a human being and my interpretive lens can be skewed instead of making judgments of, man, you're always so fill in the blank or why do you always act so? That's an interpretation based off of behavior instead of making an observation an observation might be hey it looks like right now you are angry and you are frustrated am i am i reading that right am i interpreting that correctly making a request making an observation rather than making a judgment statement uh, i think can save you a lot of heartache within communication uh, last thing, and again, this isn't going to surprise you, but it's, I would say, the one that in so many ways uh, probably could trump all of these, <laughs> and that is simply a commitment to admit when you're wrong. A commitment to admit when you're wrong. I think that uh, some of the hardest words in the English language to say in some of these moments is, I was wrong, please forgive me. I don't, I don't know about you, but I'm saying this personally. Um, I talk about marriage all the time. I've written a book about marriage and marriage counseling. I've been married for a long time to a godly wife. But even now in my Christian life, I find it so difficult to say those words sometimes. Why? Because of my flesh. Because of that sin nature that is still part of me that I have to deal with and I have to grapple with, right? Being able, when I know, I have these out-of-body moments in times of conflict with my wife where I know, I could just say in this moment, hey, I was wrong, will you forgive me? And I could completely change the trajectory of the conversation, but sinfully, I just wanna hold on. I just wanna hold on to my way. So think about some of the reasons why it might be hard for you to admit that you're wrong. Because if you understand some of the reasons why it might be hard for you to actually say those words and mean it, it can actually be a way for you to untangle that and actually correct it. So for some of you, maybe you've never seen it modeled. Maybe you haven't seen it modeled well. Uh, I'll have couples tell me, um, and, and it's sometimes hard for me to believe, but I, I believe it. They'll say, well, my parents never fought. My parents never raised their voice with one another. My parents never fought. If they did, I never saw it, which I would say on one hand, that's a positive. But I also think there's a liability with that too, in that they never get to see godly conflict resolution happen. And so the opportunity to hear a mom or a dad admit sin and seek uh, forgiveness. They just never actually had a model of that. Another reason why people, I think, find it hard to admit that they're wrong is that they're fearful of admitting to something that they didn't do. They're fearful of admitting something that they didn't do. So uh, uh, sometimes a husband will say, well, I don't think that she's completely right on this. So if I just say, hey, I'm sorry I was wrong, then she just thinks that her entire interpretation of the situation was was okay, and I just have to kind of accept it. And why do I have to do that? And so a lot of times I'll work with husbands and I'll say, okay, if even 10% of what she is saying is true, can you take 100% of the responsibility for the 10% of that conversation, right? So I'm not saying in those moments, hey, just admit that you're wrong in a blanket way, please forgive me, as a way to avoid conflict. But can you say, okay, okay. There are some points of disagreement here, I think, that we have on what happened and some of the details, but the, the 25% of what you're alleging and observing, you're right, I was wrong. I, I, I lost my cool, I lashed out at you, that was unacceptable, will you forgive me, right? So you might quibble over some of the details of how you got there, but what you might not quibble over is how you spoke to her or how you spoke to him. So own 100% of the 25% of what you agree with and use that then as a bridge, right? I will tell you this, holding on to your own stated position in a conversation does not lead to connection. I've seen it time and time again play out right before me. Two couples coming at one another and saying, no, you've got to come all the way over to me. No, no, you've got to come all the way over to me. No, the movement of biblical resolution, which we'll see Uh, in the end, in the next session after lunch is, no, admitting freely that you're wrong and moving completely towards your spouse. Other reasons why couples uh, or individuals can find it hard to admit they're wrong, pride, just good old-fashioned pride. You don't want to look like you're wrong. It could be shame or embarrassment of having to back down. So, a lot of times, couples will escalate, escalate within an hour-long conversation and once you're in that escalated, elevated state physiologically, it can be hard to kind of come back down, right? It can be hard because you're in such a high state of just anxiety to suddenly de-escalate it. There can be a lot of shame and embarrassment, or just inability to do that. Uh, remember that that negative emotional tolerance, some of those things that we talked about in that last session, uh, will be really helpful during some of those times. So, taking a deep breath, focusing on respect, being quiet and listening but coming back to uh, in a very spirit-led way, hey, I was wrong, will you forgive me? Uh, Being able to admit when you're wrong communication-wise is going to be a huge, huge boon to your marriage if you can begin to bring in that type of language into your relationship. So I hope that some of these, not only foundational principles, but also some of these practical commitments, again, maybe you leave here today saying, hey, what are a couple of these things that we want to commit to? Again, how do we eat the elephant it 's a bite at a time we 're not going to tackle and build Rome in a day, but we can focus on respect. Hey, we can focus on saying something good about each other let's let's really pray and ask the lord's help for that and that would be I think a huge win for for all of us uh, who are gathered here today. Um, when we come back from lunch we 're going to talk about conflict resolution talk about why does conflict happen and then uh, how do we actually address conflict in the moment um, but Before we do that, I'm going to have Mike come up and he's going to give us some instructions uh, for lunch.